Hello and welcome to Veritalk, podcasting the life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nick Nardini, and I'm a graduate student in English. Hi, I'm Laura Janti, and I'm a graduate student in physics. Today, as our neighbors a few states away are still recovering from the destruction brought by Hurricane Sandy, we'll be discussing the intersection of civilization and nature with an architect and historian who studies the relationship between design, construction, and the environment in both early and modern America. At the end of the program, we'll mourn the potential loss of the Twinkie by celebrating another sugary staple of the American diet, the cookie. We'll be sampling and sharing our opinion on the wares of newcomer to Harvard Square, insomniac cookies. The devastation that the flooding seawaters of Hurricane Sandy brought to the New York and New Jersey shoreline will take a long time to rebuild. Longer term, the question on everyone's mind is, how do we prevent such damage in the future? Already, some have discussed building large seawalls around New York City, while others advocate wetland edges on the outer parts of the city. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's rhetoric has focused on rebuilding what was lost in his state, while New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has been talking about updating infrastructure to protect against future, potentially fiercer storms. Today's guest is John Davis, a PhD student in the Harvard Graduate School of Design, who studies the effects of technology and engineering systems on landscapes and ecological regions. Welcome to Veritalk, John. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So John, as someone who studies these issues, what do you think of the terms of this debate? In the wake of storms like Sandy, should we be focusing on rebuilding what was lost or on engineering smarter landscapes for the future? I think it's an incredibly complex issue. And what I do appreciate is that it is now something that we can talk about in in the news and we can we are going to have a broader kind of conversation about things that are considered kind of dull like levees and swamps and marshes um, or things that people aren't necessarily interested in day to day. So I think it's an interesting opportunity in terms of the the kind of rhetoric that's being employed. I think it's interesting that we assume this has always been the case that this is the status quo that rebuilding um, back to the way things were last week is uh, just something that we should do without questioning. And so what I'm interested in is uh, how it's going to play out in terms of where we're going to see investment in kind of infrastructure, water infrastructure, and broader conversation about where we build our cities, um, why we build them there, and if that's necessarily the best place to do it. In terms of New York, I'm, I should say a little bit, I'm from Yonkers and I, I grew up in, uh, in Yonkers. I went to high school in Manhattan. Uh, it's been interesting to me uh, because that area is extremely developed, as we all know. Manhattan is, is, a, is the densest place on the East Coast. But it wasn't always that way. And it's, it's extremely different from the way it was you know, 100 years ago or, or 200 years ago or even 50 years ago. And so kind of assuming that this is the status quo is, I think, problematic. We tend to think of cities as things that organically grow. Mm-hmm. And that maybe has been the default, or maybe it hasn't been in this country. But are you proposing that what we need to do is somehow change that organic growth to adapt to the landscape that's there, or, or thinking long term in ways that maybe wouldn't be the natural growth of the city? Right. I think. I, I mean, it is interesting. We we do tend to talk about the way that cities grow in organic terms. We we kind of naturalize the that. You know, Chicago looks the way it does because of a number of, uh, you know, trade factors, railroads, et cetera. And, and it, if you look at it from Google Earth, you can see that it almost behaves or looks like it would behave organically. But I think that denies that there are a lot of kind of conscious decisions and ambitions that are played out in, in cities, especially in the realm of civil engineering. As people have always wanted to to try to control nature uh, or, or, or test their kind of 
scientific or applied scientific abilities against um, nature. And, and that isn't necessarily something that I would say is an organic process. So Chicago is a great example because in Chicago you have the famous example of reversing the flow of the Chicago River, right? Is one of the implications of the increasingly damaging weather events that we're seeing that we're going to need to move away from this paradigm, that we can change nature, that we can shape the ecological setting of a city to our own ends toward a, a more sort of modest model of, of city building? I think, I mean, I think you hit it right on the head. I, I was amazed at how quickly the seawall proposal across the Verrazano Narrows came out uh, after Sandy. And it just seems like a knee-jerk reaction where it's, it, it illustrates the faith people have in the engineering solution, the hard engineering solution to it. And that's so ingrained in our culture that, you know, if given enough capital and given uh, enough time and expertise, we can pretty much solve any problem um, or we can, we can participate in kind of like an escalating arms race against nature. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the idea that New Yorkers should be resigned to, and I heard, I heard this last week, said, a New Yorker said, well, we just have to think more like the Dutch is just kind of troubling to me because... And, and thinking more like the Dutch means just building a lot of dikes. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was, we're just going to completely um, manicure our landscape so that it, it behaves um, according to the ways that we dictate it. So water, wind, storm doesn't matter because uh, everything has been controlled and measured, which is not fair to the Dutch. But anyway, it, ser- it serves as, as an I- idea um, right now. So the big problem with the large-scale engineering solution is that it's a design problem. How how can we determine, or what catastrophic event do we design for? Then, right? Like, so is it the is it the hundred year flood, or is it the two hundred year flood? Do we design it for a twelve foot storm surge, a thirteen foot storm surge? You know, do we invest ten billion dollars in doing this to have the next storm surge be fourteen feet, and then you get a catastrophic failure and something that would be even even worse than what we have now because people would be dependent on this seawall that is supposedly the magic bullet and wouldn't be as prepared, I don't think, as they were now. So what other solutions might there be if not a large engineering project? So the the thing I've been working on is um, kind of looking back before the Industrial Revolution at kind of what cities on the East Coast looked like. And I've mostly been working on on um, Cambridge and Boston, but I have been um, looking at New York too, just comparatively. And I think what most people would be surprised to find out is that most of these cities were marshes, and it was grasslands. Um, these uh, so both Boston and New York. This is something we always hear, right? That yeah. like Washington D.C. used to be a swamp. What? Why is it that cities always used to be swamps? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a the the shoreline isn't as kind of hard and fast is, you know, we, when we think of shorelines, we think of basically the beach or um, some kind of built levee, levee system or docks along the, uh, along the shore of Brooklyn uh, or a hard wall, um, like a seawall with a, a nice little walking place or bike path along it, like the Esplanade in Cambridge. That's not necessarily the case in nature. You have a variety of, of different kind of conditions in, and, uh, estuaries or, or these kind of coastal wetlands where rivers come flowing out of the inland and meet the sea and they slow down and they spread out and they become subject to tidal inundations are incredibly complex places have have many many different types of landforms in them and they're some of the most biologically productive places in, in the world so what you're saying is that basically anywhere we built was going to have problems and swamps were maybe in fact some of the easier places to to build cities 
It's true. I mean, I think if you wanted to build a city, if you were building uh, a colonial trading port, you would need it to be near the near the um, ocean, and uh, you would want it to be in a protected harbor. And most of those places that have protected harbors are there is are basically river estuaries. Right. Sorry, but I interrupted you before. Yeah. So the other solutions besides just seawalls that you're right. well, so I mean, what I, what I was heading towards was the the marshes that historically surrounded our cities or had been peripheries of our cities served the function not only of being biologically productive for all sorts of fish that lay their eggs there, birds that nest there, um, but also were um, kind of a buffer where they absorbed tidal inundations that happened. So they were land that no one would build on because you couldn't really build on it. Um, and because that, that happened, normally people would build on higher ground, ground that would always stay dry. And the marshlands would be flooded when you get a periodic event like a major storm. Um, they would be flooded. This was just a natural part of, of what happened. The tides would recede and eventually everything would go back to, or things would go back to normal. And so you have the, the hard engineering solution that um, may work, it may fail catastrophically. And then you have kind of the other I- idea, which um, some people, some uh, designers and, and engineers have, have kind of floated, which is the idea of restoring some of these marshes that we've we've been systematically kind of building up and, and filling in. What does um, that mean in practice to, to restore a marsh? Does that mean reclaiming land from people who are living there? And- I think that was that was the situation in New Orleans, right? Uh, the, the mayor wanted to take the Lower Ninth Ward, which had been right. mostly devastated by Katrina, right. and just reconvert that into, into wetland, right? right? I mean, I, it's, it's a, it's, Difficult. I I don't. I'm not advocating that we we go on a on a spree of of, of buying up small landowners and doing it, and doing that. I mean, even though that there's a history for that in cities where infrastructure projects go through, and normally they go through poor neighborhoods, and we buy up all, and no one really says anything about it. This is what happened when Robert Moses built all of his highways yeah. in New York. I think though that there's there's an opportunity in kind of a, a shift in in industry in this country where you have. A lot of industrial sites, brownfield sites, that are um, abandoned and probably will never become heavy industry ever again, um, that all are along water, all along our, our waterfronts. And some of these places will be adaptively reused and turned into artist studios. But the land is usually, um, it, was, it was usually built on marshes. And so maybe the idea that we can take these big sites, they normally, so steel mills have a huge footprint. Um, lots of warehousing in, in Brooklyn has huge, huge footprints. And uh, the idea that we could somehow reclaim this land and use it for wetlands is a viable idea. There are designers that are working on these kind of things. There are a couple of kind of pilot projects, but nothing really at the scale that is going to save a city. But I think it represents, right? I think it's a, an interesting I- idea to think that that maybe instead of putting all our eggs in one basket and building a um, a huge dam and basically crossing our fingers, that we could consider a solution that might be something more biological, a biological infrastructure um, that we already have a precedent for funding and constructing um, in our highways. It's just, it looks different, that's all. I want to go back to the idea, you mentioned the Chicago River earlier. I mean, it's not only cities on the coast that are affected by flooding. We saw um, in spring of 2011, there was huge flooding, devastating flooding along the, the Mississippi. Are the same issues at work there? I mean, we didn't. were there swamp lands that we built along the river? What kind of issues are important for river concerns? Yeah, so the Mississippi is a fascinating case um, because it... 
it is, I mean, it's an enormous river system. It takes, if you look at a, a picture or a drawing of the watershed, it takes up, you know, a third, over a third of the landmass of, of the um, contiguous states. And so it presents its own kind of special case. But there are, there are some kind of lessons from it that you can generalize. The first is that the Mississippi is not just the river and its banks. It's, it has shifted all over the place in, in, in the course of its history, which is you know, thousands of years. Um, and the big thing that we as a people seem to have forgotten is that a river is not just its banks, a river also contains its floodplain. And the way that our property or our, our uh, land use laws and zoning and um, insurance all works out is that we just kind of conveniently ignore the fact that the floodplain is in fact an extremely dangerous place to, to, um, to build. And because of this, what we do is we apply the, I mean, the, the problem with, with the Mississippi is that it is so levied all the way from, from New Orleans well up into, into Missouri, that it it's like the to use the, the metaphor that John McPhee uses, it's like if you hold your hand down um, and a vein rises up in the top of your hand, that's basically what the Mississippi is like. We've pushed it up so that it's it's almost ready to kind of burst over the surface. And we you push get, it, we push it up why? Well the so if I'm a soybean farmer and I own land along side of the Mississippi, um, it's kind of, if, if the Mississippi shifts, I can get totally wiped out. And this is true for most of the soybean farmers along the, uh, and I mean, they grow various things, but soybeans is one of the main crops, at least from where I've, I've been along uh, Mississippi and Louisiana. If it shifts, you wipe out all of these farmers, basically. Their holdings are, are totally useless. So the Army Corps, or and it's not even the Army Corps, this is before the Army Corps even existed, has levied most of the sides of the Mississippi to keep the Mississippi exactly where it is. And we dump millions of dollars in every year into keeping the Mississippi exactly where it is to making sure that it flows out at New Orleans and not somewhere else. I mean, it, it didn't used to always flow out at the, the point where the city of New Orleans is. Um, so this sounds like a good thing in the sense that we've protected farmers who are immediately on the banks of the Mississippi, and yet we saw that there was flooding when we had more rain, when a couple of big storms is the is the damage lessened by having the the, uh, the levees there or no it's 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 actually well yes some areas won't get flooded because their levees will hold but other areas you get the you get the kind of catastrophic failure that that happens instead of the the rainwater being dispersed over a large area hmm. you get it funneled through one breach and this is what happened in New Orleans where an area that typically wouldn't have had that had the you know the whole rain or the whole rainwater of the of uh, the Great Plains coming and being dumped into your county, that actually happens now nowadays. And is this usually how this breaks down? It's usually the protection of agriculture comes at the expense of danger to, to cities or to the river delta? I mean I I I wouldn't say that this is usually, but it's it's a, it's definitely a trend hmm. that happens. Is that the the um, agricultural interests have always been um, a major factor in in kind of federal politics, and most of these because they go in between states. Most of these river systems um, are regulated by the Army Corps of Engineers. You had a question earlier about who would pay for the the kind of dam at the Verrazano Narrows, it would probably be the, the Army Corps, the federal government, or the Army Corps would build it, the federal government would fund it. And so as a federal agency, it's kind of beholden to the bigger scale interests of, of the country, which is agriculture. Agriculture has always been historically a, a major priority of the federal government. 
So you've done some, you've done some research on on a local river, right? Yeah, I, I worked on the Charles River oh, and, the most and also the, the Concord uh, the Concord River too, but uh, mostly the Charles River. Yeah. For our local audience, can you share something interesting you've learned uh, that they may not know about the history of the river? Well, um, I can share many things other than the kind of the standard, which is uh, that essentially everything in Cambridge east of Magazine Street. Um, used to be saltwater marsh, and uh, that it used to be extremely productive oyster beds. And in fact, it, I, so I live on on oh, Pleasant Street, no and yeah, I live on Pleasant Street in um, in uh, Cambridgeport. And uh, the street sign um, up in Central Square says Pleasant Street, and then in smaller um, letters to oyster beds. Hmm. And I went and looked at the historical maps, and and all of the wetlands the, in the historical maps, basically, all of the wetlands have been uh, divvied up and have a name assigned to them. So people used to actually own the oyster beds uh, at the end of the street and, wow. and ranging kind of all along where MIT is now. So MIT is basically all built on, on oyster beds. And it was a, a very productive shellfishing ground for a long time until uh, the Grand Junction Railroad was put in, which is, I don't think it's called the Grand Junction anymore, but if you go down Mass Ave towards MIT, that railroad track that you cross goes all the way down through Cambridgeport and across the Charles River underneath the BU Bridge. When that was put in, it was embanked, and it basically just went through wetlands. Um, it was embanked, and anything west of it ceased to be kind of productive oystering grounds and became kind of useless land. And that's why you get abattoirs and, uh, and soap factories that, are, that kind of pop up in the, in the late 19th century along the western bank of, uh, of that railroad. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the land east of it, which was all still uh, wetlands, was filled in in a real estate scheme similar to the Back Bay, um, but didn't fare as well as the Back Bay for, for various reasons until uh, MIT, which was looking for a new place to build, found... Um, found a good a good deal in buying this kind of swampy land on the uh, on the eastern side. So that's when Junction. MIT moved from Boston to Cambridge. Yep. Well, who knew? <laughs> and that must explain the name Cambridge Port then. Well, so Cambridge it was it was the, the you can go see up by the Longfellow Bridge there's a canal or the remnants of a canal on the lock. Um, it was thought that that Cambridge would have a port of its own that would kind of rival the the huge amount of shipping that happened in Boston, but that never really kind of, that never really got off the ground. So Cambridgeport retained its name. As, it was supposed to be a port. It was planned to be a port, but it never managed to be a kind of shipping center. It remained very pastoral actually until the railroad came in. Okay. Sounds good. I think with that, it's time to turn to the lighter portion of our show, which we affectionately call fluff. And this week we have the fluffiest of fluffy subjects, <clears throat> cookies. So, according to confectionary historians, cookies have their origin in 7th century Persia and spread to Europe through the Muslim conquest of Spain. But, you know what, forget about it. The history doesn't matter. What matters is that cookies are delicious. Whether served hot by grandma or left on Christmas Eve for Santa, nothing captures the warm, saccharine comforts of hearth and home like that elegant, circular disc of ecstasy, the cookie. And Harvard Square is lucky enough to be the home of a new franchise of the national chain Insomnia Cookies, a company founded on the premise that college students want nothing more at 3 a.m. than gooey chocolate chips. And I've brought in four of these cookies now for us to sample. So, John, are you a late-night studier with cookies? I, I'm not a late-night studier, but uh, I have been known to have a cookie before noon, 
Before noon. Ah, your morning cookie eater. <laughs> the rarest kind. So which of these four would you like to try? Actually, I find cookies are quite good for breakfast. For breakfast? <laughs> I'm out of my league here. I, I thought I was a cookie lover. I had no idea the company I was keeping. Um, so we have white chocolate macadamia, oatmeal, uh, chocolate chip, and peanut butter. Which one would you like, John? I'm always a sucker for peanut butter. Go for it. Hello. I'm going to go for the white chocolate chip. Ah, here it too. I will take the oatmeal then. Isn't the oatmeal the one that... Um, Kids dread getting relegated. So, verdict? It's a good cookie. So, don't these come out of uh, an oven immediately and into your hand when you, when you actually visit the store? It was quite warm when I picked it up, yeah. That was an hour ago. Sorry, it's a little bit colder now. <laughs> I'm not complaining. I wonder if they're still warm by the time they reach your dorm. I think I live a bit too far away. Because mm, they deliver, yeah. Mm -hmm. They must have some kind of patented cookie warming <laughs> technology. So you're definitely on the warm versus cold cookie debate. You're a warm cookie fan? You know, I won't. I won't draw distinctions. I have to say, one thing I love about the cookie in, in this manifestation is how American it is. I mean, they have uh, biscuits in England and biscotti in, Ita in Italy, but, you know, this melting sort of soft cookie doesn't really exist anywhere else and it's quite hard to find i think elsewhere mm. but distinctly american let me just draw attention endeavor. to the beautiful the beauty of the word cookie itself cookie you know that's not the same comfort is not communicated by biscuit i wonder do you know the entomology of the word cookie well they're competing etymologies the scots say that it's cook plus their suffix e which is just diminutive and then the dutch say that it's so there's a, a dutch word like um, perhaps you know it, john Cookie or something, which which means like cake and cookie is like little cake. Uh, yeah, the German word is kuchen. Is it really okay? So there, are, so there are. It's the Dutch versus the German versus the Scots. I think. Too many favorite cookie and here memories. Here I was from... claiming it was an American <laughs> thing, but this version of it is very American. Yeah. Too many favorite cookie memories from childhood. Uh, the other thing I love about cookies is that they tend to be associated with, um, or certain types of cookies tend to be associated with cultural events or holidays so my mom makes uh, pecan puffs cookies for every Christmas and to me every time I see a cookie that looks like a pecan puff which is a bunch of pecans butter and uh, flour cooked wow. and then wrapped in confectionery sugar yeah. whenever I see that I think of Christmas so do I my mom made the exact same thing oh, really? it's the most delicious cookie to me yeah I agree wow strange John any especially warm memories well uh my first dog was named cookie she uh, <laughs> she had a um a white stripe. She was all black and had the white stripe down the middle of her head, so she looked like an Oreo. So my little <laughs> sister decided to call her Cookie. And so I always think about that when, uh, when. So anytime you eat a cookie, is I it a little bit like no. eating your dog? <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, that about brings us to the end of our show. So John Davis, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Laura Janti, thank you as always. Thank you, Nick. Thanks also to our off-duty host Xiaoshen Li, our producer James Brandt, and our guardian protectors in the GSIS Publications Office. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, gripes, or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash veritalk. You can also find me on Twitter at, at Nicholas Nardini. From all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening. <laughs>